Welcome to CV Now, your podcast from the Houston Methodist Debakey CV Education. I'm your host, George Tripsis. As social distancing has become our new normal during the COVID-19 pandemic, the use of telemedicine has skyrocketed across the world. With physicians using it to both safely manage COVID patients with minimal contact and care for a variety of patients without requiring them to come into visits in person. However, adopting a new technology is not always straightforward. The pandemic has greatly accelerated the process. The key driver was making this easy for the patient, easy for our office staff, and easy for our physician, because if it's not easy, it's not gonna work. And I think it was really critical that we stressed over and over that we don't expect our physicians to be IT experts, they need to be medical experts. And this is a tool for them to use like a keyboard, not something that needs to get in the way of the care. Today, we're bringing together a group of cardiologists from around the United States to discuss barriers and solutions to quickly implementing telehealth in their institutions and the future of telemedicine beyond COVID-19. Dr. Ahmed Solomon is a preventative cardiologist and associate medical director of Houston Methodist DeBakey Cardiovascular Associates. He's joined by cardiologist Dr. Heba Wasif from the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. William Downey from Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hello, and welcome to the Houston Methodist Heart and Vascular Tele-CV Education Series revolving around digital health and telemedicine. My name's Ahmed Solomon. I'm a cardiologist here at Houston Methodist. Over the last few months, as we have been living through the COVID-19 crisis, a major pandemic that changed the world in what feels like an overnight storm, many things changed dramatically, including our communication with our patients, as well as management paradigms. These continue to evolve in a very quick way. Clearly, the world went virtual overnight. It was inter interesting to see that many learned and adopted very quickly what some of us have been advocating for many years. The value of telemedicine is well demonstrated nowadays. This is not limited to the practice of medicine, but also to the practice of cardiovascular disease. Those of us that have been practic practicing and trying to advance telemedicine for a while will tell you how an uphill battle it has been. This COVID-19 pandemic was a great opportunity to open doors that have been locked for a very long time. And here we are. The implementation of telemedicine has taken off faster than any of us would have imagined. In circumstances, none of us would have wished for, but it's now out of the box. The recent past will very soon feel like the distant past. There will be a new normal for the practice of medicine. There's always something good in everything. The goal in this series is to discuss and understand the implementation of telemedicine well beyond the current crisis to learn this from, a physi from physicians with expertise in digital health and telemedicine, administrators and industries that have been in this for a while, have been and will continue to be a major impact on leading us through to provide more efficient care, how to adjust the financial aspect of this care, how we retrain the current and train the future generation of cardiologists, not just to provide this type of care, but to innovate through digital medicine. Cardiologists have the opportunity and should be at the forefront of how things will be changing in our practices in the very near future. Today, I am pleased and honored to welcome two very special guests today. I'll present them both, and then we will start with their presentations. Dr. Hiba Wasif. Dr. Wasif is a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, trained in both uh, general cardiology interventional at Johns Hopkins, 
And among many titles and responsibilities over the years, the most impressive in my opinion is that she is a long time telemedicine digital health avid cardiologist. She has been advancing the field through multiple programs and grants over the years. She is part of the leadership at the, in the Healthcare Innovation Council at the American College of Cardiology and is co-chair for the Digital Health and Devices Workgroup. Welcome, Dr. Wasif. Thank you, Ahmed, for this introduction. I, I'm delighted to be here. And this is certainly a very, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult time and we did not wish that digital health be advanced in this way, but here we are. Yep. Our next guest is Dr. William Downey. Uh, Dr. Downey is a cardiologist in a very beautiful part of the country, in my opinion, um, at Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, trained in both cardiology and interventional at Mass General, among his many titles and responsibilities, he is the Vice Chair uh, Quality and Care Transformation and Medical Director at uh, Sanger Heart and Vascular. I had the opportunity to attend the CV Summit in February of this year, uh, which, by the way, I would highly recommend um, if it is held next year to, to attend. Um, and I had the opportunity to listen to him in two different sessions regarding uh, clinical integration and telehealth. Welcome, Dr. Downey. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for organizing this so that we can, uh, you know, take this uh, unexpected uh, and unfortunate opportunity to really learn from each other. So thank you. We will uh, start with Dr. Um, Wasif uh, first in regards to uh, physician uh, adaptation, adoption. So th thank you, Ahmed. Um, so I'd like to talk about physician's adoption. And this is, um, I have no disclosures in regard to this uh, talk. Over the coming few minutes, I will be describing the technology adoption lifecycle. I want to discuss physician's motivations for adoption and provide case use examples one of them pre-COVID and some post-COVID. But before we do that, I'd like to go to the very beginning with one of our very early innovations with a stethoscope that seems part of our traditional care today. And we don't think twice about it, but when it was invented in 1816 and, and came to use in by 1819, the early uh, 19th century, a group of American physicians who were studying in France at the time were introduced to this new technology and brought it over to the US. However, the process of adoption was very, very slow. The majority of practicing physicians in the US at the time were in rural areas and most of these physicians were in the Northeast and it took over 90 some years to, to adopt this technology up to the extent that Osler in 1903 said, it's shocking to say, but you all know it to be a fact that many, very many men in large practices never use a stethoscope. So what were the barriers for adoption? Well, some of these barriers were investigated by Reinhardt, who reviewed a lot of the literature and medical books and medical curriculum at the time and came up with these three major elements that he felt to be barriers for adoption. One was lack of formal education and opportunities for continuing medical education, particularly for physicians who practice in rural area and clearly at that time did not have exposure, not as we have it um, these days with all these technologies that connect us. The complexity of the interpretation of these auscultatory findings that were recent and a lot of physicians were not able to uh, integrate them and understand them as well as the hesitancy to change from traditional medicine, where patient and physician were very close 
and to introduce an instrument in between. And this theme is very common and will be heard throughout this presentation. We move on to the, 19, the 1960s with Everett Rogers and his classic work of the fusion of innovation. He described the, the fusion of innovation as a process by which innovation is communicated through members of society over a period of time. And those members were described in a bell-shaped distribution. And as we can see, it seems very familiar. We can even put names on some of these categories. So it ranges from the innovators who are highly motivated, high, very resourceful individuals, risk takers, the early adopters that have similar qualities as the innovators, but the difference is that they have leadership qualities. They're capable of creating change. They can move things along and propagate the innovation. The early majority, somewhat pragmatic, somewhat reserved, but are willing to adopt if you provide them with a service or a technique that they're willing that provides value to them. And the late majority will follow with the early majority. And of course, we end up with the laggards who will never change regardless of whatever you produce uh, to them. So those are the individuals in this adoption cycle. But what about the different factors that affect adoption? We always talk about implementation, but we don't talk about adoption where adoption is part of any implementation process. And this work from Jennifer Wisdom et al. reviewed intensive, uh, in, in, had an intensive review of the literature and a different, different frameworks in regards to implementation of innovation and came up with this very complex construct and framework, which is multi-layered as we can see for the factors that impact adoption external factors, organizational factors, factors related to the innovation process, the innovation itself. And I'd like to focus on the individual factors. What motivates individuals? What, how, what makes them ready for change and the capacity to adopt? And it's understanding these factors that would allow us to cross the chasm from the early adopters to the early majority and move on with our innovation. So this question is like, what motivates physicians? So the AMA asked that question twice, in 2016 and 2019. And the question was in regards to a very broad spectrum of digital tools. Some of them are very familiar to us, remote monitoring for efficiency, meaning blood pressure monitoring, uh, ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, apps and devices for chronic disease management, clinical support systems um, also for chronic disease management, patient engagement, and telehealth, which is the, um, uh, the hero in, in this uh, conversation. Point of care flow enhancement, communication among physicians, and consumer access to clinical data, such as my chart and so forth. And with this very broad clinical, uh, digital clinical tools, they ask that question, what motivates physicians to use these digital tools? And clearly the number one factor that motivates physicians, because this was a mixture between primary care physicians as well as specialists, it was efficiency. It had to improve efficiency, secondary increased safety, improves diagnostic ability, reduced burnout, particularly for younger individuals as well as women, improved patients' adherence, 
and its convenience, and it also maintained the patient-physician relationship, the traditional relationship that we've talked about. So what were the requirements to adopt these digital tools? And some of these themes are familiar to us, that it be covered by malpractice insurance, integrated into the AMR. Reimbursement, interestingly, was not a priority in this particular survey. Also additional factors, some factors related to the individual, that it be as good as traditional care, that it's safe and it's simple, does not require any special training. And from there, I moved from my own experience at the Cleveland Clinic, where some of these factors were mitigated, such as coverage by malpractice insurance, a semi-integration in the EMR record, and that's pre-COVID. The reimbursement was primarily out of pocket. And in spite of that, and in spite of the exponential growth of our digital health visits across the enterprise from 2014 to 2019, only 20% of providers accounted for 85% of virtual visits. So the Heart and Vascular Institute wanted to cross the chasm and improve our adoption for this technology. <clears throat> and the way to be able to uh, cross the chasm was assembling a diverse group of physicians, identifying a champion physician in each section to re to represent the members, this champion was responsible for surveying each section and their needs and their processes. For example, in my section, the clinical section, we identified that our post-hospital discharge was um, no-show rate was about 20% compared to 5% in other divisions. And we wanted to target that particular area by using virtual visits. The champion also had a role in facilitating training and demonstrating the ease and the use of the technology. But COVID-19 took us by surprise. And within the first quarter of 2020, our number of virtual visits almost approached the number of virtual visits throughout 2019. And we're expected to continue <clears throat> to see that rise. On a national level though, from the Innovation Council standpoint, we were interested in understanding how prepared physicians were when they were surprised with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and how that impacted their practices. And, it, and so we conducted a survey through the ACC digital, uh, from the digital website. And we asked, uh, and we have 342 respondents from a very wide, broad uh, variety of practices across the US, over 300 in 42 states. And 90% of respondents said that COVID-19 has pushed their organization towards telehealth sooner. And only about 14% were using telehealth previously. And that was not much different from the national average where in the, in the um, AMA survey, about 28% were using it. And physicians adopted very quickly. They were willing to provide the services in any way, shape or form whether it was integrated in the EMR or not integrated in the EMR, as well as how they would provide the service, whether it's from home or from the office, from a laptop, from a desktop, from a smartphone, in any form. And there was a wide spectrum of which digital tool was to be used. And of course, we talk about barriers and barriers were asked during the survey and reimbursement was, was the number one barrier for not advancing 
with telehealth um, adoption. Some of the comments that we have heard was liability. Uh, physicians were concerned about outcomes. At the same time, also the, the concern about bonding and trust that needs to be established and is better established through a face-to-face -face visit, traditional care coming up again. So where do we move from here? And as Ahmed had mentioned, training. I think it's very important to proceed with medical, with telehealth training in our medical schools, which is already happening. And at least 60% of medical school are providing some form of introduction to telemedicine uh, across the US. So the take home messages uh, from reviewing all these case uses and so forth, that adoption is not a top-down process. Physicians want to be involved. They've always wanted to be involved. The respondents, over 90% said they wanted to be involved to underline the motivating factors and the barriers for us to be able to overcome the chasms, identifying a clinical champion to assist in the process, medical school education, and hopefully not waiting for the next pandemic to promote innovation. Thank you very much, Dr. Rwasif. Um, so, so it, I mean, I think it's clear that um, physicians that thought in the past that they would not want to do this or really cannot do this, found out very quickly that they can and they actually do want to do this. Um, so Dr. Downey uh, will uh, discuss with us and explain to us um, what, he, uh, what his practice went through over the last uh, few months. Dr. Downey. Wonderful, thank you. And uh, thank you again for organizing this. So we were in a fairly different place. Um, First, a little bit about Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute. We're 37 uh, practices uh, uh, encompassing uh, adult and pediatric cardiology with cardiac surgery and vascular surgery, as well as pediatric cardiac surgery, um, comprising uh, about 300,000 visits a year among uh, more than 220 providers. Um, and prior to um, March 15th, more than 99% of our visits were face-to-face. -face. We had some very rare uh, telephone visits in our uh, heart failure clinics um, post-discharge, but um, it was very close to 100% face-to-face visits. Um, as uh, COVID came, we realized uh, we had a problem. We've got 300,000 annual visits that are gonna get, um, should get shut off for the safety of our system and for the safety of our patients, recognizing the um, uh, extraordinary uh, uh, mortality rate for the 80-year-old patient with heart failure who might get COVID in our waiting room, um, we realized we had to change something essentially overnight. We um, uh, began working on a telehealth strategy um, on a Monday afternoon um, had it in trials by uh, Friday with one platform, uh, early trials with one provider and some uh, education and working on standing things up. Uh, but uh, that Thursday, before we began the trials, we made the decision that we would be closing our offices on Monday to all face-to-face uh, -face visits. So we basically had from uh, less than seven days of total 
uh, less than seven uh, total days to transition from 100% in, uh, face-to-face to 100% not face-to-face. Um, and it's remarkable how you, quickly you can change uh, when you say you're closing down your um, traditional way of doing it. Um, things that uh, supported that were, one, we confirmed uh, uh, that our liability coverage carry, uh, carried us through uh, 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 both telephone and uh, video visits, so there wasn't a liability issue. Um, as we all uh, felt the um, waves of regulatory changes, but the regulatory apparatus, CMS, and our um, uh, uh, other uh, commercial payers was evolving re- very rapidly. For us, in the middle of that week, Blue Cross Blue Shield said that they would uh, establish pay parity for both uh, telephone visits and uh uh, video visits with um, uh, with face-to-face visits, meaning at least for one of our major p- uh, payers, that became a non-issue. And we thought, one, it's the right thing to do, and likely um, other payers, including Medicare, will hopefully come along fairly quickly. Um, our system um, gave support to our practices by saying, uh, for the time being, we've got your back, do the right thing and we'll figure out the reimbursement later on, but keep seeing patients. Um, It sort of let us um, lead the regulatory changes, uh, skate to where the puck will be, um, rather than waiting for the puck to get there. Um, From a uh, individual provider uh, workflow adoption, we really didn't uh, offer much of a choice because we said we're closing our offices. So that whole adoption cycle of Early adopters and laggards almost didn't matter because, um, well, you have to go to work on Monday and now your work is at home Um, and we will help you. But here's what you got. So that gets all it didn't feel very comfortable for many of us. I would say it felt quite uncomfortable for almost all of us. But there was certainly not a much of a question of adoption. Um, We couldn't have 20 percent adoption because we were seeing 100 percent of our patients that way. Um, but incumbent upon us leaders was to actually make that feasible, to simply say, we're closing your office, you have to do something different, and that something different doesn't provide a platform on which to provide the quality and efficiency of care that you're used to providing um, would be you know, criminally irresponsible, to be honest. So we spent, and uh, a small team spent a lot of hours um, one, testing platforms, but two, creating all sorts of auto texts in our EHR and making the documentation process in the EHR as much like the face-to-face visit as possible. We created new billing codes that looked exactly like the old billing codes and were parallel on the screen, except they were in a virtual column. If yesterday you clicked the one on the right, now you click the analogous one on the left, and we'll work through not the physicians, not the other providers, but the back office staff and leadership will work on um, a uh, creating a workflow where we figure out what those bills mean later. Just tell us what you did. So we made it pretty easy to provide the care that you wanted. Um, at first, 
we didn't have a video platform that we felt comfortable rolling out to everybody. So we said, provide your uh, care via phone visits um, for that first uh, several days. Um, we canceled a number of appointments to uh, cut back on the number of visits so that we could validate the workflows and then identified a few potential early adopters who on that very first day ran through uh, uh, video uh, visits with a platform. By uh, two o'clock in the afternoon on that first day, it was apparent that the platform that our system had used for urgent care and seemed like the one we already owned and the best thing to use was simply not going to work for our patients. It was actually just fine from a provider viewpoint, but for our office assistants, getting our patients set up on the platform via email with our office assistants now working from home, the patients with varying degrees of technical savvy, as all ours do, um, and frankly, our office assistants with um, uh, essentially no prior coaching on how to coach the patient through the process, we realized that our current platform was just too cumbersome to get the adoption that we needed from patients. We also saw that we really needed to quickly get to video um, because at that point, we didn't think that we would uh, uh, be where we are now, where there's at least temporary parity for most payers with uh, telephone. Um, we felt like in order to get reimbursement, we needed to move very quickly to video. Um, so here's sort of a graph of our transition. If you, um, this is pre-COVID uh, over the year. The um, blue is new visits. The uh, orange is uh, uh, return visits. And uh, whatever amount of virtual visits in gray and yellow is too small to show up on the graph here for these weeks. Um, within, however, that first week, we uh, first days, we uh, pre-transition, pre we cut back on our visits and began doing a little bit of telephone and video. When we closed down, except for some urgent visits, we moved quickly to uh, telephone with a tiny bit of video, um, really just testing the platform. Um, but in doing so, um, maintained over 45% of our total expected volume on a weekly basis, which we thought was pretty good. Um, and then over time, added video so that now of our total uh, uh, virtual of our total visits video is now more than 50% as of last week. There are still uh, a sizable number of telephone visits and a few face-to-face -face visits which are beginning to, beginning to grow back as the uh, local guidance on uh, businesses uh, opening and our uh, uh, remain uh, is loosening a bit. But this was really our, our very rapid adoption of uh, a telephone followed by uh, video approaches. Um, really for us, the key driver was making this easy for the patient, easy for our office staff and easy for our physician because if it's not easy, it's not gonna work. And I think it was really critical that we stressed over and over that we don't expect our physicians to be IT experts, they need to be medical experts. And this is a tool for them to use like a keyboard, not something that needs to get in the way of the care. And we worked as really hard to make that as 
come as true as possible, though in a rapid transition, clearly there are hurdles and we tripped on a number of those hurdles. But at the, at the end of the day, um, we simply got to a decision tree where our office assistants could find, call the patient, say, do you have a smartphone or a computer that has a camera on it? If the answer is no, you get a phone visit. If the answer is yes, we give you a video visit. We moved um, fairly quickly to um, doxy.me um, as an easy button for us where you can send the patient a text. Um, all they have to do is receive a text and click on it, and they are good to go. Um, I think there are other platforms that work equally well. That's simply one that we arrived at that has worked well for us in this rapidly evolving environment. I think there's been an incredible amount of innovation uh, by uh, a lot of these companies that's been been really helpful to us. And I who knows if the platform we're using today will be the platform we use in, in three months. Our current workflow is then uh, such that uh, now 30, mays, uh, 30 minutes prior to the appointment, our medical assistant calls the patient, does the medication reconciliation, asks the patient to check their own vitals if they have the capability of doing so, and confirms that the patient is in the provider's virtual waiting room um, so that uh, then I come up and the medications are already done just as the, and the vitals are already done just as they would if the patient were in the room. Um, I do the video visit, document off to the side. This is not integrated into our EHR. It's through a web browser that we put up on a separate screen uh, from our EHR, but has worked relatively well. Um, it was, you know, we have felt like despite, uh, being HIPAA compliant was important. Um, I realized that for the time being, those uh, uh, regulations have been relaxed, which has helped enormously, uh, but we don't expect the, those, uh, uh, that laxity to stay for the long term. And to the extent possible, we wanted to quickly get to something that was HIPAA compliant and could be uh, relatively stable for us uh, if possible. So the platform we've chosen is um, and what was really, we discovered very quickly is our patients at least struggled with opening links out of email. Um, they got confused about which email it was going to, and it's, it turned out to be more cumbersome than I would have expected, but the text link works very well. And the, uh, scripting we've given our office assistants is to tell our patients, um, to ask them, do you FaceTime with your grandkids? Well, this is pretty much like FaceTime. If you can do that, you got this. And that, instead of talking about virtual visits, if you talk about FaceTime, people relax a lot and it works much better. One of the nice things we've liked about um, uh, the platform we're using, and I think others uh, do this as well, is you can have multi-party video calls so that you can actually have um, patients and their family who themselves aren't in the same place but to have difficult conversations about procedures, uh, end of life care, you can have everybody on one call. And I think the communication is, um, it can be outstanding. In addition, uh, you can share your screen. And so I've, uh, we've each demo uh, created a number of diagrams and things like that, where I think actually my patient education may be better than it is with the uh, 
poor drawings I often do in the patient room face to face. Um, here I can use my mouse on some uh, uh, documents I've made for PowerPoints or other reasons. Um, and uh, for example, my last case today, showing them what a PFO is and how we would talk about closing it um, at least as well as I do face to face. Um, again, we talked about really trying to make it easy as possible so that the um, using our standard office note that everybody's used to using, um, we needed to have some legalese in there. So we created auto text that said that the patient consented, that we did what we were supposed to do, that we're licensed in the state where the patient was, et cetera, and then documented the time. But this was really, we don't expect the providers to know this. We just created an auto text and said, fill in these two blanks and you're good to go. We also created these new internal codes for our visits so that we could then on the back end crosswalk to figure out, you don't need to stay with the changing policies of payment. Instead, you click on something that looks like the code you're used to clicking on for a given office visit. We'll figure out later what bucket it's gonna fall into for a given payer. In short, telling our providers, you provide the care that is your job to provide we'll try and make the technology a facilitator of that, not a burden to that. And I think thus, time, thus far it's worked pretty well. Um, you know, I put up here some patient feedback because uh, one of the things we did was put in extra patient assessments and provider assessments so that we got, um, and you know, overwhelmingly people have been uh, thankful that it was safe. Um, but also I've heard uh, multiple people saying they never want to go back, including patients I uh, uh, would have been very surprised that um, it's been easy. And they've said, you know, it was really nice not to have to get in my car and drive an hour uh, to see you for 20 minutes. Instead, I'm here in my kitchen. Um, I must say, as a provider, I've really enjoyed and I think uh, learned from the uh, entree we get into our patients' homes by seeing what's in the background. Um, and I think it, it adds a nuance to the, the care that we provide. So I think, uh, you know, there are some silver linings in these clouds. There will be, you know, uh, more difficult transitions to come. I don't think we are at the final place for this. Um, I think we clearly have more road to go to a place where we are 100% video. Um, but I think there is zero question that this will be a lasting part of the care provided um, when we did none of this on March 15th. I think that probably sets up a hopefully it's a good opportunity for a conversation. Um, and I'm really interested in what other people have learned, barriers they've seen, how they've gotten around those barriers, et cetera. I think one other piece I wanted to share is um, training 222 providers simultaneously when they're all at home is not so easy. And one of the things we did to get around that uh, was rapidly produce um, training videos in PowerPoint that we pushed out and they showed click on this, click on this, very simple, less than five minute videos that you could watch and te teach yourself how to do it. Um, that was also not something we had rolled out 
Previously, our IT people would take months to come out with videos and this and that. Instead, us doctors put them together with a few administrative staff. We, we're not going to win any Academy Awards, but they got the job done. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Downey. Actually, uh, that is uh, very similar to, to my experience also. Um, I, um, I finished fellowship in 2018. And then we started, um, I started telemedicine um, a, f a few months after I started practice. I, I also trained here at Houston Methodist. And um, I remember for the last year or so, it's been trying to get people to at least try a few visits uh, to, via virtual care or telemedicine or so forth. Um, and then just out of nowhere, spring break came, came along and it was, where are we? We need to do everybody. And by the end of the week, everybody's on board um, uh, just out of nowhere. Um, it's um, it's interesting how and, and then now when you talk to um, any of my colleagues right now, um, they love it um, and they're very comfortable doing it and they feel that it's a lot more efficient in most cases. Obviously, it's not in 100 percent cases, but in most cases it is. Um, so, Dr. Wasif, if you don't mind me asking um, in regards to physician uh, adoption, um, there's also there's always a question about um, patient culture. So. This is a this is a culture change for physicians, but it's also a culture change for patients. Um, I'll tell you, over the last year and a half since I've been working and doing telemedicine, um, some most of the and it was cash pay. So most of the patients that did not want to do telemedicine was because of the uh, payment. Um, uh, again, it's almost less than ten percent. But some of them were like, "Why would I come in? You're not. Um, why would I do this virtually?" How is it that you would not examine me and how would that you provide me care? How or what do you see um, in regards to tools to help patients understand that this is a culture change, but we're still offering or able to provide you good medical care? I think it, I, um, in my experience, I, di I didn't encounter that because initially before COVID-19, I didn't feel that patients were resistant. To it, it's all about the proper patient selection. Yeah. Who would you have for telehealth? Um, who would be able to use the telehealth? But most of these patients were patients I had seen in the office and before, so they were familiar with me. And most of the visits were visits that were mostly to discuss um, uh, lab results or to discuss imaging results. So. Actually, they were very grateful that they didn't have to drive four hours from a different state or so forth just to have this discussion. So I think if patients understand that what the purpose of the visit and the objectives of the visit are clear to them, they're, they're, they're happy to stay in their own yeah. homes. They don't want to drive four hours. And even if you're in an urban area, uh, they don't want to be like struggling to find parking and so forth. So I think understanding what the visit is about, um, because sometimes even in the office, they ask like, I'm not sure why I'm here. Uh, they need to know why they're there. And post COVID, I actually also found in that patients were, were very grateful. They were very happy to have a, uh, a physician talk to them and that they're able to discuss their problem with them. And they're also very grateful that we're able to see their homes as Dr. Downey was saying, it was a very surreal experience for us to actually, they are able to see my office, I'm able to see their home. It was much easier for me to um, 
you know, go over their medication. If they were not sure about the medication, they would go and get their mm -hmm. medications and we would they would show me on the screen and, and we would do the medication reconciliation and, and verify it. So to, to answer your question specifically, I, I think patients are more digitally in tuned and not, this will not work with every patient and we have to be very clear on patient selection. And we also have to um, be quite clear why we're doing the visit. Like, yeah. why am I doing this? Uh, clearly with COVID-19, nobody wanted to come into the office, but post COVID-19, the purpose of the visit has to be clear. And, and there is value there much more than the physical exam. A lot of times it's the history that we get from the patient that really matters because you're ordering a lot of tests, you're getting an echo, you're getting uh, an MRI. There are other tests that would assist your physical examination. And I think in the future, our visits are not just gonna be without a semi-examination. There'll be other tools. The enhanced visit will probably take place. There'll be sensors, there may be some facial recognitions, there'll be other tools to assist, um, you know, to improve the, the quality of uh, the, the platforms in the future. I agree. I, uh, that's what I was doing for the last year and a half. Was at the end of the initial visit, I would tell a patient, so we are going to do, for example, an echocardiogram. We're going to do a treadmill stress test. And by the way, we offer virtual visits so that you be able to, from home or from work, and I had even patients who were in their car, uh, um, and they would stop somewhere nice. and that we would, yeah. Well, actually well, a couple of them were on the highway, but it turns out they were their passenger, not the driver. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. But, but it's, again, it goes back to efficiency and um, simplicity of, of uh, the technology in of itself. Um, Dr. Downey, so when you were showing your numbers, you're, uh, you had almost about 300,000 visits a year or so forth, 60 plus percent for Medicare. Um, what do you anticipate I, I know it's hard, but what do you anticipate for the future regarding how this is going to go about? Obviously, you know, I can't read the mind of the federal government um, and how they may, uh, what of these uh, regulatory barriers they've taken down that they will choose to put back up. Um, I, my sense, and I think this is a, a sense of many, is that um, the uh, genie is out of the bottle to some extent yeah. for this. I think it's going to be very hard for them to go back and say, well, we're paying you $14 for a video mm -hmm. visit. Or um, I think my guess is that telephone uh, parity will go away and they will require a video to get paid much. Um, that's a guess, uh, not, a, not any inside knowledge. Um, I think um, video is likely here to stay. Whether it ends up truly at parity with face-to-face -face visits, I think remains to be seen. Um, for Medicare, I think for um, other third-party payers, it very likely will. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield and Aetna and Humana are trying to sell to employers just like we will directly sell our product to employers. What does an employer want out of a healthcare provider? Um, they want the healthcare provided as inexpensively as it can be accomplished with minimal lost time for work. If I need to see somebody for their coronary disease and that takes them 
20 minutes logging in from their desk over their uh, from their office versus taking the afternoon off to drive an hour to see me for the same 20 minute visit to then drive back home and have missed the whole day. Well, now the employer paid the same thing for the visit, but lost a half day's productivity from that person. I think that's ultimately going to be a significant selling point. That obviously doesn't completely apply, you know, doesn't apply to the Medicare uh, population. Um, but I, my sense is um, that uh, COVID is not going to be a three-month phenomenon. This is going to be here for a while. What that means, I don't know, but I would be surprised if we weren't still in a similar boat a year from now. That means we'll be 14 months plus into um, an environment where the safe thing to do is virtual visits. Once the field has moved that far and patients are used to doing it for 14 months, it's very hard to see it going totally backwards. I'd be interested to know what others think. Um, that's I, I agree with you, Dr. Downey. I, I don't think we're going to just reset the button to pre-March 17th or March 6th when the law was passed. I don't foresee that. I think it's here and it's going to be here to stay. And CMS, and again, I don't have any insider knowledge, CMS had already shown that it was moving in that direction. They were reimbursing for some visits, the virtual check-ins. Um, they were loosening the rules somewhat. And so, it, and the, the fact that they moved very quickly and they were very agile about ad advancing this waiver I don't see the, us moving now. There may be some regulation, there, there may be some measures that need to be put into place to ensure that, you know, that there is um, value and safety in these visits um, and proper documentation um, for most of these visits. I'm not sure about the telephone because there remains the question of that not everyone <laughs> has a smartphone. There are a lot of disparities and, 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 and it's been accentuated or, pay, or patients who don't have broadband, ruler areas that don't have broadband. Um, so there, the, the phone, I have a feeling that may stay, uh, but of course we don't know. And we may be in this for, for the long haul. It may be a couple more years before we even know where we move. I but think I think it gives CMS some time uh, to think this through uh, after this rapid um, implementation, yeah. I, I think one of the one of the uh, rules on virtual medicine before um, COVID was being in a rural area or being um, or a certain distance from a major metropolitan uh, city. Um, I, I, I anticipate that the telephone visit may require something of that sort. I don't know how they would be enforcing that or how they would be uh, evaluating that, but. It's clear that there is a definitely a disparity, socioeconomically at least. Um, um, we've even seen it in um, um, education at this point in regards to um, the, abil the availability of broadband internet uh, access. So uh, let me ask a couple of questions that we have. Um, I am in private practice, and um, how do I implement telemedicine if uh, I'm not a part of a ma major or large institution? I would say at least the platform we use is actually not made for a major organization. They are, um, are it is an individual provider contract. We just did 222 individual links and it's a um, I think $35 a month subscription. Anybody can do it. 
Um, it literally you sign up online. It's, uh, you know, easier than, uh, um, you know, uh, buying a pair of socks on Amazon. And, and I agree. I mean, it's, this is not the, it's not cumbersome as uh, implementing the EMR, which is very costly. Uh, there are many different platforms. I think the key is that these platforms are HIPAA compliant. I think that that's the key. If it's a HIPAA compliant platform, that's what you want to invest in. You don't want to invest in something that's not HIPAA compliant because if they're going to loosen, the, if any rule will be enforced, it'll probably be the HIPAA compliance. And I think um, many of these platforms are a month to month uh, subscription that is, you know, a trivial amount of money in the grand scheme of things. Um, but the fact that it's month to month means that if you make a mistake or something better comes along, you're not married to anything. It's just a website you visited and paid a subscription, um, you know, that's uh, frankly, you know, less than the cost of your newspaper. Um, another question that came up is, what would I not use telemedicine for? I mean, before, before COVID-19, I would say end of life decisions, difficult um, uh, discussions I would have never had uh, to do over telemedicine and it would not be my practice. Um, under the lockdown situation, we've had to have discussions uh, over the internet. Um, so the rules depend what can and cannot be discussed depends on the situation. If it's a difficult discussion that you want the patient to be there with their family uh, and you feel that it, it needs to be face to face, then it has to be face to face. But if you feel that it can be done on, on the internet, then uh, that would be adequate. Um, I think it's end of life decisions, difficult decisions, um, multiple, like t talking to somebody about their fifth surgery that they need. Uh, I find it very difficult to discuss over uh, a platform, but under the situation, we've had discussions. I think the other piece is um, where there really is a critical physical exam component. Uh, they can't be substituted. There frankly aren't that many of those. I think vascular medicine, being able to feel pulses is important. Um, on the other hand, it can be arranged that you get some testing ahead of time um, and make that portion of the, the physical exam relatively irrelevant. Um, I think, you know, the patient, uh, it, certainly it could lead to some increased testing. Um, for example, the murmur that you might have left, but you get an echo because you can't hear it, but it was referred to you for the murmur a little bit. To be honest, the majority of those patients are going to come to you with an echo um, for their murmur, not this is just a patient with a murmur. So I, I think the uh, liabilities there of excess testing are, are modest, though not zero. Um, for me, the bigger one is, uh, one, the relationships and difficult conversations uh, that Dr. Wasif spoke of. Um, and then two, if they're coming in for a test anyway, if they're coming into my office for the echo today, well, probably I just gonna see you while you're here, rather than you drive home and we talk to you virtually tomorrow. I think a lot of the in-person visits we've done have been, well, shoot, you're already exposed in the same office. I might as well meet you there as opposed to hiding 10 feet away in my office. And the other thing is that if, if I, if it's a condition that I'm not able to diagnose through a telemedicine, and that has happened with a few patients, 
you try to troubleshoot during that visit and they come to your office as soon as it's possible. As a matter of fact, that it happened a couple of times where patients with particularly shortness of breath, they're not able to assess their volume status. Um, they're, 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 you're not sure what is going on. Um, and those patients, I eventually had to bring them back to bring them into the office to examine them. Um. So another question, which I think um, um, many physicians are finding out very quickly, burnout, physician burnout in regards to outpatient care and so forth. Uh, what are your thoughts about burnout, Clin clinical burnout from physician standpoint? I think the burnout comes from the excessive um, messages and the, the EMR and you spend your majority of the time in clinic uh, first documentation and then you spend a majority the rest of the week trying to answer questions and and respond to the EMR message that's where and that's part of where the the burnout comes and i think part of it as well is sometimes the lack of efficiencies in our clinic the flows um it, some things don't flow very well and so forth and where telehealth is somewhat helpful is that there is efficiencies built in it where things are done ahead of time and you just essentially show up and, 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 and do your visit. And the documentation may be the same, but there may be other tools that would help with the documentation. So the burnout, I think, is, is, a, is a major issue and we're all suffering from it. And I don't think there is a, a magical a bullet to, to treat it or a magic pill to treat it. Uh, I think efficiency may help it. Yeah. yeah, I think there's. it would be a mistake to pretend like this is a panacea for the um, challenges of burnout. It's simply another tool for doing the same work that we've always done with most of its flaws. Um, with most of the benefits that we also, uh, that we, you know, come to work to provide for our patients, but many of the efficiency flaws that um, have contributed to burnout. Um, you know, I think uh, you saw on our graph that, you know, we are only still at only about 65% of our usual weekly volume in the outpatient clinics. The reason for that is um, recognizing the challenges of this transition is we've switched our follow-up visits from being 15 minutes to being 30 minutes. And that has, and we've kept our new patient visits at 30 minutes. You still work the same number of hours, but you're only getting about two thirds of the patients in a given day. Um, that helps with burnout, but ultimately leads to only two thirds of the visits uh, across the week. That was, um, I think, an important thing to do to facilitate adoption and help people get over the hump. Um, but I shouldn't pretend like it's a panacea for burnout. And now with that said, I've had a couple of providers say, you know what, I had clinic today and I did it from my back porch via video. And it sure was kind of nice being at home with my wife and doing it from my back porch instead of in a windowless office. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that'll really last. Um, but if that were one day a month, I think that actually helps a little bit. But it, 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 by no means is this a panacea. No, I definitely, I definitely agree. I think um, some eventually, once this kind of settles down, it will become some sort of hybrid type of um, situation where you have one or two days a month where you can actually do um, most of your visits from home. 
uh, do most of the digital paperwork from uh, from your EMR system uh, from home or so forth. Um, but no, no, I, I, I definitely agree. But I also think that eventually if and when um, this becomes a lot more um, mainstream, meaning that we have proper devices, proper data that, I mean, if we have the data in regards to activity, blood pressure, heart rate, weight, um, and so forth, um, and proper and accurate information regarding medications um, and questionnaires beforehand, so you know what this visit is about, um, it becomes, it makes the 10, 15 minute um, time with the patient um, a lot more efficient. And I see that I actually I do believe that tele, telemedicine, these visits are more efficient than the in-person visits. You're cutting on a lot of inefficiencies that you may face in the system, uh, the delays that happen in the system. I, I believe that here the clinic, to a certain extent, goes much, much smoother um, with no delays for the most part. Um, and that reduces the burnout. I mean, it, it, yep. it certainly does. It's not a cure the, because it's only one aspect of the reason why the bur why physicians are burning out. And mm -hmm. it's not only about the clinic. I'll say I, I have a lot more uh, or a lot less um, late shows and no shows um, uh, on virtual clinics. There's no reason for it. Um, no late patients. Uh, driving into the uh, Texas Medical Center and trying to find parking and trying exactly. to find out where the office is and so forth, and they come huffing and puffing trying to get there. Um, it's a lot more comfortable, a lot more easier to be on time uh, from home or from work. Exactly. Um, well, I would like to thank you both very, very much. It is, it is a pleasure to have you. As um, I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Hiba Wasif and Dr. William Downey. Um, as we conclude our session today, thank you so much. Thank you, Ahmed. This was a thank delight. Thank well you. Done. And that's our show today. Thank you for joining us. We'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences on telemedicine in the beyond of the COVID-19 pandemic. So send us a tweet using hashtag CVNow and don't forget to tag us at DeBakeyCVEDU. We'll hope you'll tune in next time as Dr. Solon revisits the topic with a focus on using telemedicine to reach underserved communities. And of course, if you like the show and you want to support us, please like the show, subscribe, and leave a review. You can find more digital cardiovascular education opportunities through DeBakey CV Education by following us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter.